Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of domestic violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. The first rule of sleight of hand is misdirection, creating a distraction so people can't see what's happening right in front of them. But Doris Payne wasn't a magician. She was a jewel thief, one so skilled she could walk out of any jewelry store with diamonds worth thousands of dollars. Of course, she had another secret. Looking so glamorous, nobody would suspect her. Doris's scams lasted well into her 80s, and to this day, she doesn't apologize for any of it. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we'll learn how a difficult childhood in a coal mining town taught Doris Payne the value of money and the basics of thievery. Next week, Doris's larceny career takes off, and she travels to Europe, escapes jail, and lives the life of a jewel thief for decades. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Doris Payne was born in October of 1930, a year into the Great Depression. She was brought up in a coal mining town in the West Virginia mountains called Slab Fork. Though the town was ethnically and racially diverse, it was also segregated. Doris's father was a black coal miner, and her mother was a housewife of Cherokee descent. 
Because of her father's job in the mines, the Payne family had enough to get by. They lived in a four-bedroom house with heat and running water, but Doris considered the town depressing. Over time, the neighborhood became, in her words, a slum. Meanwhile, the atmosphere inside her house became worse as well. When she was seven years old, Doris saw her father beat her mother for the first time. Doris was one of five children, but she took it upon herself to try to protect her mother. She threw herself on top of her in an attempt to shield her. Another time, she poured boiling beans on her dad's back to stop his attacks. Around this time, Doris created an imaginary husband for herself. She named him Vernon, and in the privacy of their backyard shed, Doris would practice beating him. It made her feel like she was punishing her father when no one else would. Before we continue with Doris's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to an article by Dr. Melissa Stiles in American Family Physician, witnessing domestic violence can have negative effects on a child's mental, emotional, and physical health. Elementary school-age children tend to blame themselves or try to protect the parent from the abuse, while adolescents who witness abuse are more likely to engage in antisocial behavior such as delinquency, lying, and stealing. While it's hard to know if witnessing domestic violence led directly to Doris's later crimes, it did impart one lesson, always have money. Doris knew that her mother stayed with her father only because she had to. Reliant on his income, she was essentially trapped in the abusive relationship. Seeing this, Doris was determined to find a way to make a living. She would make money by whatever means necessary. But self-sufficiency wasn't her only goal. If she had money, she could live a certain lifestyle, one of luxury, beauty, and excellent taste. From an early age, Doris knew that she wanted to be surrounded by beautiful things. They weren't easy to come by in Slab Fork. Her mother subscribed to magazines like Harper's Bazaar and Town and Country. She read them to keep up with the latest fashions. When her mother was done, Doris read them too. She'd pore over the photos of women in beautiful clothes, then cut out the pictures and paste them on her bedroom wall. Sometimes she'd even pretend to be like these women in a game she called Playing Miss Lady. Her fascination with luxury only increased when she snuck into a screening of Gone with the Wind. Nine-year-old Doris was immediately struck by the character of Scarlett O'Hara, the white heroine. She wanted her nice clothes, her hair, and her mansion. But when she told her brother this, he just laughed. He said she'd never grow up to be Scarlett O'Hara. She'd only end up like Mammy, one of the slaves on Scarlett's plantation. In his mind, there was no way a black girl like Doris could ever live a life of luxury. Doris was infuriated. She felt that anyone could aspire to a life of luxury and wealth, no matter their race. But before long, Doris realized how far away her dreams of a better life really were. 
One day while she was in grade school, her father was seriously injured in the coal mine. A slate fell from the roof of the tunnel in which her father was working, crushing his right leg. He survived, but the accident killed several of his co-workers. In her autobiography, Doris explained that while she wanted her father to be punished for hitting her mother, she didn't want him to be hurt or killed on the job, or as she put it, crushed under a pile of rubble like some slave who built temples for pharaohs. Doris realized that miners were risking their lives and being exploited by the coal company. No one was looking out for the miners' health and safety. All anyone cared about was whether or not they could make the coal company money. The injustice of it all never left her. Not long after this, Doris's mother decided she'd had enough. She left her husband and moved to New York, where she worked as a seamstress. However, a few years later, she returned to the marriage and to Slab Fork. When she came back, now with some money of her own, she promised to buy Doris a watch if she got good grades in school. By now, Doris was in her early teens, and the idea of a brand new watch was exciting. Eager to get a head start on the process, she went to go browse at the local jewelry store. When she got there, the owner, Mr. Benjamin, greeted her warmly. She told him why she was there, and Mr. Benjamin took out some watches for her to look at. He even slipped a few onto her arm. But then a white man entered the store, and Mr. Benjamin's attitude suddenly changed. He snatched the watch from Doris's arm, locked up all the others, and told her to run along. Doris could only assume he didn't want the other man to see him being nice to a black girl. Doris was heartbroken and furious. The incident especially stung because Mr. Benjamin had always been friendly to her and her family. This was racism, plain and simple, and Doris vowed to get back at him for it. But as she made her way to the door, she noticed something. One of the watches was still on her arm. Apparently, Mr. Benjamin had been in too much of a rush to put his merchandise away and hadn't noticed one missing. So she turned around, told him that she had almost walked off with the watch by mistake and returned it with a dramatic flourish. When Doris got home, she was still enraged. She went to her room and pulled down all the fashion photos on her walls. Before this, Doris had loved looking at the models and had tried to emulate them. The fact that they were all white hadn't made a difference to her before. Now she saw them differently. As she looked at the image of wealth that she and everyone else was being sold, she felt resentment bubbling in her stomach. She knew these women weren't better than her just because of their skin color, and neither was Mr. Benjamin. In that moment, Doris vowed revenge on the gatekeepers of wealth and power. She swore one day she'd be so rich that no one would treat her like that again. But the episode had taught her another valuable life lesson. If a sales clerk was distracted enough, you could walk out with whatever you wanted, and they wouldn't notice a thing. 
When she turned 16 in 1946, she decided to put her theory to the test. One day, she boasted to her friend Lil that she could make sales clerks forget she was wearing their jewelry, even in a big department store. They both could. All they needed to do was look put together and act like they owned the place. So the girls put on their best dresses and church gloves and boarded a bus headed to Cleveland, Ohio. Once there, they headed to Woolworth's department store. Inside, the two girls approached the jewelry counter. While the clerk showed Doris a few watches, she started chatting him up. As she tried on and admired the gleaming pieces, she told the man that she was a college student. She knew that the combination of a good education and her nice clothes was all she needed to earn his trust. It worked. Slowly, the clerk let his guard down, paying less attention to the teenage girls. When his back was turned, Doris made her move. She announced casually that she'd be back to buy a watch later, then bid him farewell and left. As they walked away, Doris peeled back her glove to show Lil. Concealed beneath was the watch she'd never taken off, and that the clerk never noticed she was still wearing. Lil nearly spit out her drink. Doris Payne had just pulled off her first heist. Up next, Doris perfects the art of the steel. The internet, what would we do without it? So much information, so little time. And yet, with all the answers available online, there still lie scores of deep, dark, spooky secrets. Mysteries yet to be solved until now. This isn't clickbait. This is our exclusive new podcast, Internet Urban Legends. I'm Loie, your evidence expert. And I'm Eleanor, the self-proclaimed skeptic. Together, we're the gruesome twosome, sleuths in search of the weirdest stories on the web. Every Tuesday, we investigate the internet's creepiest conundrums, covering each conspiracy theory and combing through every clue to separate hoax from haunt. Whether it's the video sure to make you lose your appetite, blank room soup, or every kid's worst nightmare, the terrifying truth behind Disney's deaths, or every parent's worst nightmare, social media's Momo challenge. Each episode of Internet Urban Legends is chock full of disturbing details which are either truly demented or ripe for debunking. And no matter our conclusion, we're sure to be left scared half to death. So won't you join us? Follow our new Spotify original from Parcast, Internet Urban Legends. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This episode is brought to you by Fiat. A remix just hits different. The 2024 Fiat 500e is no exception. Cruise city streets in style with an all-electric ride that's fully equipped with an available premium JBL audio system. Explore the all-new 2024 Fiat 500e at fiat.com. 
Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA, used under license by FCA US LLC. Now back to the story. Growing up in the 1930s, Doris Payne's childhood wasn't easy. Time and again, she watched her father beat her mother and tried to intervene, even as a young child. These episodes left Doris determined to be financially independent, no matter the cost. But she didn't just want to be self-sufficient. She wanted to be wealthy. To her, having money meant nobody would ever treat her differently because she was black. But money was hard to come by in her hometown, and it wasn't clear how Doris would ever make any. Until she learned a valuable lesson. It was all too easy to steal. When she was 16, Doris and her friend Lil paid a visit to the Woolworths jewelry counter in Cleveland, Ohio. There, Doris successfully walked out wearing a watch she didn't pay for. Her friend was amazed at how easy it was. As soon as she'd shown Lil, Doris walked back into the shop to return the watch. All she'd wanted to do was see if she could get away with it. The clerk was grateful. He said Doris was a trustworthy, honest girl and thanked her for bringing it back. After that, Doris and Lil made their outings to Woolworths a weekly occurrence. Doris didn't steal anything, yet. Instead, she focused on getting better, perfecting the art of making clerks forget she was wearing their jewelry. Through careful observation, Doris learned what went into pulling off a successful steal. And it wasn't just one thing, it was all the little pieces coming together. The best time of day, the right attitude, wearing the right clothes. For example, when people came into the store looking shabby and speaking in a mountain twang, Doris noticed they wouldn't even be waited on. But when a person came in looking like they had money, someone who spoke with authority, the clerks dropped everything to try to sell something to them. It was all valuable information she filed away. But Doris's lessons took a back seat when her father was laid off. After that, the family had to live off of a small weekly severance check. It was barely enough to get by. Still, they did their best. On Fridays, Doris and her mother went to the local market for groceries. One day, Doris got on a line where the girls working the counter seemed anxious to take their break. Once she got to the front, Doris explained she was simply selecting groceries for her mom, who would come by to pick them up later. Then she took her sweet time picking out the items she wanted. Eventually, the girls got fed up with waiting and left to take their break, leaving Doris all alone. So when she was done picking out her food, she simply walked away with the lot. When she met up with her mom, carrying bags of groceries she clearly hadn't paid for, her mom didn't ask any questions. She seemed merely amused at her daughter's mischief. Perhaps she thought it was a one-time act of rebellion, a phase she'd grow out of before long. If Doris's mom worried about her daughter's new hobby, she was likely distracted by bigger worries. 
two years later, when Doris was 18, her mother finally left her husband once and for all. She took Doris and her 10-year-old brother to Cleveland, leaving Slab Fork behind for good. It was a fresh start, but new beginnings often bring new challenges. Soon after arriving in Cleveland, Doris got her first boyfriend and, in due course, found out she was pregnant. She gave birth to a son, Ronald, and later a daughter, Rhonda. But after seeing how unhappy her parents had been, she wasn't interested in having the father in the picture. Instead, she chose to raise her children on her own, with her mother by her side. With more mouths to feed, Doris began searching for a job, eventually finding work at a home for the elderly called Euclid Manor. But despite the encroaching domesticity of her life, Doris hadn't forgotten how much she enjoyed stealing. Even with two young children and a full-time job, she still longed to pull off the perfect jewelry heist. She knew that it all started with the right clothes. So with the money she earned at her new job, she bought fabric and asked her mom to sew her a nice dress. Then she worked on finding an accomplice. Luckily, there was a perfect candidate right under her nose. At work, Doris made friends with a white coworker named Norma. Norma had let slip that she was struggling to pay for medicine for her sick mother. That was all Doris needed to hear. She proposed that the two walk over to the May Company department store and go up to the jewelry counter. Norma could pretend to be an ailing heiress and Doris could be her caretaker. It's a little unclear why, but Norma agreed. Maybe she thought it would be a fun joke, a game to take her mind off her troubles. Whatever her reasons, she was on board. So Doris gave Norma one of her mother's nicer dresses to wear, and she kept on her uniform from work. When they got to the store, the two walked up to the jewelry counter, playing their assigned roles. Doris told the sales clerks that Norma was looking for a wedding band, which her fiancé would pick up later. Right away, the middle-aged man behind the counter brought out an assortment of rings to tempt the wealthy customer. As he helped the trembling Norma try them on her shaky fingers, Doris slipped a wedding set into Norma's pocket, unnoticed by all. Then, Doris told the clerk that her patient had to go home to rest and that they would return tomorrow to make their purchase. When they got into a taxi, Norma was shocked. She'd had no idea about Doris's scheme, and she wasn't happy about it. But Doris told her she'd done it so she could help Norma with her mother's medication. She made Norma feel like the heist was her idea and promised to give her $100 after she sold the rings at a pawn shop. To most psychologists, behavior like this is classic Machiavellianism because it demonstrates expert manipulation. Psychologist Tomasz Beretzke writes that a highly Machiavellian person will use their cognitive abilities to assess their partner's cooperative intentions and to pursue exploitative tactics when the benefit exceeds the expected costs. In other words, they can easily size up a potential accomplice and get the person to do something for them, or even convince them that it was their idea all along. 
In this case, it's not exactly clear why Norma agreed to pose as a sick woman in a department store, but by the time she realized what Doris had done, it was too late. Her willingness to go along with the ruse had made her Doris's unwitting partner. Then Doris manipulated Norma into believing they were in it together. She convinced Norma that they were equally guilty. Even though it was Doris's idea, Doris's game, Doris's profit. Days later, Doris sold the stolen jewelry at a pawn shop for $1,500, or around $14,000 today. After she gave Norma her hundred bucks, the rest was all hers. She spent some of it on a beautiful wedding set, something she knew would prove useful for any future heists. Because while pretending to be a wealthy woman was important, pretending to be a wealthy married woman was crucial. With a closet full of beautiful dresses and her sparkling wedding ring, Doris felt confident enough to go solo. In 1956, she pulled off her biggest heist to date. On an April morning, 26-year-old Doris put on one of her most glamorous dresses and boarded a bus to Pittsburgh, over 100 miles away. When she got off, she was met with stares. As she walked through downtown, she felt a little too conspicuous in her beautiful dress. But Doris shrugged off her nerves and headed to the Clark department store. The store's middle floors sold jewelry, beautiful pieces that catered to movie star clientele. As Doris stepped off a gold-plated elevator and walked underneath glittering crystal chandeliers, a doorman gazed at her, starstruck. He welcomed her into the room full of mahogany and velvet display cases. Doris told a clerk that she was looking for a diamond ring, so he brought some out pieces that ranged in price from $5,000 to $20,000. Almost immediately, her gaze fell on the most expensive ring, equal to over $193,000 today. Doris knew she'd have to be a deft magician to pull this off, so she did what's known in the con world as a three-card Monty. First, she started shuffling the different rings. She'd pick one up, try it on, try on two more, switch one ring to the other hand, put another back. She even pretended to get her own wedding rings mixed up in the bunch. The key was to keep all the dazzling jewels moving as much and as quickly as possible. Before he knew it, the clerk was so confused and excited that he let down his guard. He turned his back on Doris for just a moment giving her the break she'd been waiting for. She slipped the $20,000 diamond ring into her glove and said she had to go, but she promised she would return the next day. Then Doris walked straight out of the store, considerably richer than when she'd entered. She was confident that the clerk would be too embarrassed to have misplaced such a valuable ring that he wouldn't report the incident right away. She figured it would give her just enough time to get out of town. As she headed into the elevator and looked at the giant diamond in her glove, she thought of all the things she could buy once she pawned it. But as she exited the building and turned a corner, she stopped in her tracks. 
her daydreams vanishing like smoke. A cop was standing right there, and he was looking straight at her. Up next, Doris learns to think on her feet and finds a partner in crime. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact: you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like a gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it, so look for the blue checkmark next to that thing you love, and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit eBay.com for terms. Now back to the story. In her late teens and early twenties, Doris Payne worked on honing her skills of deception. She started by stealing groceries for her hungry family, then worked her way up to stealing a twenty-thousand-dollar diamond from a swanky department store in Pittsburgh. Doris managed to get the diamond out of the store, but just steps from the building, she came face to face with a police officer. Not knowing if he was after her, Doris picked up her pace. She knew she needed to get away, but where could she go in this strange city? If she went back to the Greyhound station, she'd be a sitting duck as she waited for her bus. So she took refuge in a phone booth and called her mom, only to get a busy signal. So she waited an hour and called again. But once she got her mom on the phone, she couldn't admit what she'd done. She hung up, and then her stomach dropped as she realized she'd accidentally spent all her money on phone calls, leaving her without bus fare. Now she had no way to get home to Cleveland, and it was getting dark. So Doris did the only thing she could think of: took shelter in the bus station bathroom. She spent the night there, sleeping in a small bathtub. The next morning, a station worker woke her up, bringing the reality of her situation crashing down again. After splashing herself with cold water, Doris was back on the street. She still had no idea how she'd get home, but soon her mind was on something else—a beautiful gold robe she'd noticed hanging in a store window. Doris loved the look of it and thought she might shoplift it to have an outfit to change into. So she slipped on her new twenty-thousand-dollar ring and walked into the store. Then she told the salesperson that she loved the robe, but the woman couldn't take her eyes off Doris's emerald-cut diamond. She gushed about how beautiful it was, how rare the cut was, and soon Doris had an idea. She began tearing up. She told the saleslady that the ring was a last reminder of the no-good husband who cheated on her, and that she was getting a divorce. The saleswoman tried to comfort her, then beckoned over an older man who looked like her manager. On the spot, 
He offered to buy the ring from Doris. She just needed to name her price. Doris couldn't believe it. She'd gone there to shoplift a robe, not pawn off the ring she'd just stolen. Still, she thought quickly and arrived at a number she thought was reasonable, $7,000. To her surprise, when she told him, the manager went into a back room and returned a few minutes later with an envelope. Inside was $7,000 in cash which would be more than $65,000 today. Doris gulped, placed the envelope in her purse, and handed him the ring. Then she stepped outside and laughed out loud, a mixture of pure joy and relief. She hailed a cab and chuckled all the way home. Doris wasn't just exhilarated, she was proud. It was easily her biggest score to date, and she couldn't wait to tell her mother. Not that her mom knew what she was up to. Still, Doris suspected her mother had some idea and just turned a blind eye to it. Now $7,000 richer, she couldn't see any use in pretending. It was time to come clean. So when Doris got home, she sat with her mom on the porch and admitted how she was able to really help put food on the table by stealing jewelry and reselling it. Doris's mother was silent, which wasn't the reaction she'd hoped for. Doris wasn't ashamed of what she was doing and hoped her mom would be as excited as she was, or at least supportive. Trying to get her mother on her side, Doris told her that she wasn't stealing, she was taking. She pointed out that, at the time, most diamonds came from mines in Africa, where the labor conditions were horrible. The people who mined the diamonds, she argued, hardly saw a cent. In her mind, the diamonds were stolen to begin with, so what was so wrong with her stealing them back to provide for her family? Doris's mother didn't quite see the parallels in her daughter's Robin Hood analogy, and to be fair, it's possible Doris was using her argument to disguise her real motives, which weren't that altruistic. According to Maria Konnikova, the author of The Confidence Game, Why We Fall For It Every Time, grifters and con artists are born when predisposition meets opportunity. According to Konnikova, some people have a predisposition to narcissistic, antisocial, and or Machiavellian traits. But these only appear when a financial opportunity presents itself. Then the person bends over backwards to convince themselves that what they're doing isn't so bad. Most grifters have a convincing cover story for why they're taking advantage of other people and, if confronted, will peddle some altruistic rationale instead of admitting guilt. In fraud and white-collar crime, many scam artists even convince themselves that deception is necessary to beat the competition. Having a good rationale for why you're stealing is a classic sign of a con man. We can see this in action when we look at Doris's story. While her rationale may have seemed noble on the surface, she really wasn't benefiting anyone but herself, and her mother saw right through her. Doris's mom told her that calling it taking instead of stealing didn't make the crime any less serious. Plus, it wasn't as if Doris was trying to return some of the money to those working in the diamond mines. 
Still, Doris didn't change her mind, and a few days later, she decided to show her mother exactly what her skills could bring them. She put a cash down payment on a four-bedroom house in a nice neighborhood. This changed her mother's mind. Finally, she saw how Doris's gift for the grift could benefit all of them. And for Doris, she loved being able to provide for her family, and she felt the urge to pull another heist right away. But this time, she wouldn't be as lucky. Only a week after the episode in Pittsburgh, Doris strolled into a local jewelry store in Cleveland. But right away, something seemed off about the clerk. Nonetheless, she did her three-card Monty act and walked out with a ring on her finger. But she hadn't gone a few steps when a cop pulled up to the curb. This time, there was no getting away. He was definitely there for Doris. He told her to get in the police car, and she did. Then he informed her that the clerk had called her a racial slur and reported her theft. Doris acted aghast and insisted that she had simply forgotten to take off the ring. Plus, the clerk hadn't reminded her she was wearing it. She could tell the cop didn't quite believe her, so she laid it on thick. She concocted a story about how her father wanted her to pick out a ring as a graduation gift that he would later come and buy. She watched the cop look her up and down. He took in her nice clothing and expensive bag, and before she knew it, he'd let her go. He'd clearly assumed she was a wealthy woman with no need to steal. It was a narrow escape, but the incident taught Doris another valuable lesson. If she was ever caught stealing, she'd just blame it on the clerk and say that they forgot the ring was on her finger. Still, Doris also realized that she was getting a bit out of her depth. Aside from the close call with the cop, she needed to learn where to sell what she stole and how to cover her tracks. What she really needed was a mentor. Enter Harold Babe Bronfield. Doris heard about him from a woman he'd helped out of a sticky situation. That was the kind of guy he was. He had connections everywhere. When he wasn't running an upscale jazz club in Cleveland, Bronfield fenced stolen jewels on the black market. He had the chops to move things before anyone even noticed they were gone. Doris knew she'd have to meet him. So in the fall of 1957, 27-year-old Doris arranged to meet Babe at his club. She was instantly struck by his appearance. Six foot four with slicked black hair, Babe was handsome, and Doris was immediately attracted to him. She introduced herself and told him that she needed someone to help her sell stolen jewelry. He seemed interested, but a little doubtful that the young woman in front of him was as slick as she said she was. He wanted to see her work with his own eyes. The next day, Doris and Babe dressed as a wealthy couple and drove to Philadelphia. They went to the Lagarde jewelry store, where Babe pretended to look at diamonds, while Doris chatted with a female clerk. She was more used to male clerks, so dealing with a woman made her a little nervous, and this sales lady didn't seem easily charmed. Nevertheless, she took out a tray of rings for Doris to try on. 
As she admired the jewels, Doris worked her usual magic to relax the clerk, waiting until she turned around. When she finally did, Doris shuffled the rings in the tray and pocketed one. Then Babe swooped in and distracted the clerk while Doris left the store. Later, they got in the car and headed back to Cleveland. Babe burst out laughing at how easily Doris had stolen the ring. He couldn't believe it. He took her hand and squeezed it. Doris felt a thrill as they began singing to a song on the radio. But before they could finish the song, a news bulletin cut in. The police were on the lookout for a couple who had just stolen jewelry from a store in Philadelphia. Babe's expression changed from carefree to serious as it dawned on him. The police were looking for them. The rest of the drive back to Cleveland was tense, and the two went their separate ways once they arrived. The next morning, Babe called Doris with some bad news. The police had identified her. She'd need to go to the station and surrender herself. But before she had a chance to panic, Babe explained how it would go. First, she'd confess. Then he'd use his connections to pay her bail and get her out. Apparently, this was all part of the business of moving jewels on the black market. So Doris obligingly went to the police station in Philadelphia, where she confessed and was fingerprinted. Strangely, no one asked her about the ring, and she was out by the end of the day. At first, she couldn't work out why it had all gone so smoothly. The only thing she could figure was that Babe and the police were in cahoots, and they were. Babe knew the judge and the district attorney. The process was all just for show punishment was never in the cards. It must have been a heady rush to feel untouchable, and the perks kept coming. Later that week, Babe sold the ring and gave Doris a cut of the profits. It was a lot of money, and there was plenty more to come. But before that, she had a difficult choice to make. Her new criminal record made her private life a lot more complicated, and her burgeoning career as a jewel thief would only make things worse. So Doris made a decision. She'd always support her son and daughter with the money she made from her heists, but she knew her lifestyle wasn't conducive to raising kids, so she sent her children away to live with their father, who she'd hardly spoken to in years but she knew it would be worth it in the end. Sometimes dreams require sacrifice, and Doris's new dream was to become a master jewel thief, and nothing was going to get in her way. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two, when Doris travels to Monte Carlo to steal a diamond worth over half a million dollars. For more information on Doris Payne, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Diamond Doris by Doris Payne extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time.
Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Stephen Davies, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Katie Waldron, with writing assistance by Joanna Philbin and Joel Callen. Fact-checking by Cara Mackerline and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Vanessa Richardson.